It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. A high school stalker fantasizing about death, a seemingly harmless friend, a creepy encounter while camping, and a neighbor who turns out to be a domestic terrorist. Headphones recommended, listener discretion advised. Good evening and welcome back everyone. I'm your host Chad. This week, I'm bringing you four true horrifying tales straight from Reddit that will chill you to the bone. So brace yourself. This is Disturbed. Before we get into it, I have a small request from you listeners. I want to hear where you're listening from. So send in a voicemail or a text at 701-354-3667 and let me know where you're listening from and what you enjoy about the podcast. What are you doing while you listen? Let me know. I'd love to hear back from you guys. Now, let's get into it. The changing of seasons, the crisp air, you can feel it. So why not cozy up with some true, terrifying horror stories? Tonight, our first experience comes courtesy of Reddit user Purple Puppy Dog, with narration by our own Addison Peacock. I moved a lot growing up. By the time freshman year of high school came around, I had moved seven or so times and was about a year and a half into my most recent move. I'd found a pretty close group of friends in middle school and we all went to high school together. I met him through one of those close friends. They were in band together and even though he was almost four years older than us, we welcomed him into our group. Sam was easily twice my size, tall and heavy set, and originally kind of intimidating, although I was never afraid of large men before him, lesson learned. I had kind of a bad home life, and I spent as much time as I could at school, sometimes hanging around the school campus until six or seven at night with this friend group. Three of us lived in the same direction, and we would walk the half-hour trip together until our paths split. One slightly colder evening, Sam offered to walk me home since the others had gone home already. I just thought he was being a gentleman. He mentioned something from a previous move when he lived in California. 
He didn't walk a friend home and something horrible happened. He left it at that, and I let him walk me home. We got a lot closer after that. We bonded over both living in California and exchanged numbers. He would message me late into the night about his depression and self-harm, and I just wanted to help. A few months later, he tried asking me out. It was this big romantic gesture. He learned a Disney song on the ukulele and sang it to me in the cafeteria. But I was already dating someone. And when I turned him down, he got angry. A freaky, quiet, twitchy kind of angry. I felt so bad. I started seeing him everywhere. We were still friends, we'd still hang out in groups, but I would pass him on the street walking somewhere, and a few minutes later I'd see that he changed directions and had started to follow me. He would walk me to classes by following me in passing period at a distance. I started to minimize the group time we spent together, and he would follow me more. I had friends meet me at each class and walk me to my next one because I felt unsafe. He knew where I lived. Then he started to talk. Not to me, but to mutual friends about that one girl in California who he tried to walk home. At first, she just shared my name. Some crazy coincidence. Then she had the same brown curly hair and blue eyes. And every time he rambled about her, she became more and more like me. And then he said what happened. Over literal weeks, this fantasy evolved. They were walking home and they were jumped by some guy with a knife. It was a robbery gone wrong on her birthday, January 24th, my birthday. And she died horribly and he couldn't react in time. She bled out in his arms. Sarah, who has brown curly hair, blue eyes, my name, my birthday, and sounds just like me, bled out in his arms. Each retelling added more and more details, and this guy with his sick fantasy about my death would follow me around and knew where I lived. My boyfriend was abusive, mentally and physically, but I stayed as close to him as I could whenever I could, because if the worst happened, I knew for sure he could throw a punch. I never felt safe at school or in our little town walking home from school in the dark. One day at school, he had a breakdown, freaked out, and ran out of the school in a panic. I was sent after him, and I found him curled up on the floor. I got closer. I knew about his anxiety and depression, and my safety aside, I wanted to make sure he was okay. It was then that he told me this horrifying story that I had been hearing from mutual friends, with added details. We had been walking home from a concert in California. We passed a dark alley, and a homeless man came out with a rusty knife and asked for anything valuable. I fumbled for my phone. I didn't have anything else on me, and he thought I was calling the cops. He stabbed me. Once, twice, again and again, and Sam stood there horrified. He saw red and grabbed a broken glass bottle near my body and attacked the homeless man. He killed him with his own knife. He told me he killed someone. My stalker killed someone. It didn't matter how messed up he was anymore. I didn't care if it was a fantasy or real. I didn't care how it would affect his mental health anymore. I wanted to go to the police. 
I was scared for my life. My friends convinced me to go to the school counselor first. That morning, we went and told them everything. The stalking, the stories, how he admitted to murder, and that was the reason they moved from California. How I was afraid for my life and wanted to call the police. The counselor didn't take us seriously. She went to the principal, and the principal, not a mental health expert, called Sam in to talk about the accusations. The principal then informed me that he did not think that Sam had any kind of mental illness or that I was in danger, and that was that. I lost faith in adults, gave up on going to the police. I stayed with my friend walking me in between classes, hiding behind my abusive boyfriend, and looking behind me every step of my walk home that year. The counselors ended up gaslighting us to the point where this all feels like a fever dream now, and I would think it's made up if it weren't for my journal entries recording the events and my growing panic and the similar stories from my friend group. Clarifying some confusion, I don't think anyone actually died in California. I think he's a pathological liar and that he was so deep in a fantasy that he had convinced himself it was real. No, I wasn't physically hurt, but it was emotionally scarring and the threat that he posed to me was 100% real. Hey Sam, let's not meet again. Now, let's shout out our brand new Patreon fan club members. Tyra A, Kelly Madero, April Emore, Kimberly Sullivan, and Russell Galfo. Thanks everyone for joining the Patreon fan club and supporting the show. All of them will now enjoy tons of awesome perks, including our bonus episodes of Disturbing Calls. Four bonus episodes are available to binge right now, with a brand new one in the coming days. If you're curious what else is included for Patreon members, or you want those bonus episodes along with many other perks, visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast and join for as little as $3 a month to start receiving your benefits today. Again, that's patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast or find the link at the bottom of the show notes. Now, meeting new people can be fun and exciting, but every once in a while, you meet someone who takes things a little too far. Our next experience comes from an interesting Reddit username, Beh Bleh Bleh, with narration by our own Rachel Diamond. I am a 23-year-old female, and this story is about a 33-year-old man. Let's name him Greg. I met him at the gym a year back. I used to go to the gym with my mother, and being an introvert, I would very seldom engage with or even talk to people. Being in the gym for the last two years, I had seen Greg work out and never really caught him staring or even looking at me. He's a well-educated, well-spoken man, and I assumed that interacting with him wouldn't pose any threat to me. One day, Greg walked up to me at the gym and asked to add me on Facebook so he could promote some things regarding his business. I didn't think of it much as I'm barely active on the platform and I let him add me. Slowly, our interactions grew in the gym as well as on social media. I was going through a rough patch, so I would often find myself looking for a friend or even more. 
From the very beginning, my mother did not like Greg because she felt that something was off about him. Nonetheless, I chose to meet him and another mutual friend of ours from the gym for coffee. I wasn't strongly romantically inclined towards Greg, but wasn't overtly opposed to it. At coffee, our conversations were quite general, but while texting, Greg would casually flirt with me, and I'd just ignore it. Big mistake. The more I spoke to Greg, the more I realized that I didn't see any kind of future with him, even as a friend. Eventually, I started backing off and took longer and longer to reply to his texts. I didn't want to blatantly snub him because we went to the same gym and I wanted to avoid any hostility. Another big mistake. Eventually, we stopped talking. Fast forward six months. I got my dream job and posted about it on Facebook. Greg congratulated me and told me he was proud of me. I gave him the benefit of the doubt and started replying to his texts. He again began making flirtatious remarks toward me, but this time I blatantly told him that that makes me uncomfortable and I don't want to be involved with him romantically or sexually. Subsequently, the conversation died down and we parted on cordial terms. He would text me messages asking for feedback for some of his work regarding music, but I'd generally ignore them. In July of this year, I got a message from Greg. I was on a list of people to give feedback on his broadcasts, and he was asking me for feedback. I respectfully told him that I'd like to be taken off of the list since I didn't see myself as being qualified enough for giving appropriate feedback. He went off over text, and I did not understand. I asked for context, and he told me he wouldn't give me context except on a phone call. I agreed to call him. Another mistake. We spoke for two hours, wherein I made it very clear to him that I see him only as a friend, and if he wants to pursue anything more, he's barking up the wrong tree. He complied and was very respectful throughout. I assumed that there was no harm in talking to him as a friend. For a couple of weeks, we spoke as friends and perhaps as future work partners for a music venue. I was hesitant, and I would shoot down his informations to meet by making excuses. He was understanding and told me to take my time. After about three weeks of being friends again, Greg came clean about his intentions and let me know that he's attracted to me. He began making very sexual remarks towards me, which made me really uncomfortable, and I told him that now I don't feel comfortable even meeting him since we're not on the same page. He was agitated, but told me that if I wouldn't meet him, he doesn't want to talk to me anymore. I thought to myself, good riddance, as I was getting increasingly tired of him calling me every day and telling me about his inflated self-image. He told me that he'll contact me after a year and we could meet then if I reconsidered my feelings towards him. I obliged since I just wanted him out of my life. I was off my phone that day for six or seven hours. When I came online, I saw numerous missed calls and messages, some of which were threatening in nature. He said he'd show up to my house and hurt me and my family. This is when I realized that I may need to involve my family and the police. I told my parents the whole story. They didn't immediately contact the police because these could just be empty threats from a man who doesn't take no for an answer. The following day, Greg bombarded my parents with threatening messages, claiming he would abduct me if they wouldn't marry me to him. We contacted the police. The police went to Greg's home to investigate, but seeing his behavior, he was on the roof, half naked and yelling obscenities. They declared him mentally unfit and told us he can't be arrested. We withdrew the complaint and contacted higher law authorities. While we were waiting for a response, Greg allegedly committed a crime in a five-star hotel. He assaulted a female employee and a guest with a knife and tried to molest the employee. Consequently, an FIR was filed, which led to Greg being admitted to a mental institution. He stayed there for a few days, and now he walks free. 
We were able to file another complaint against him, which was taken more seriously this time. However, we were advised not to create a case against him, as he's not yet committed a crime against me and would easily get off on bail. So he still roams free and continues to contact me from unknown numbers once in a while, making me feel I'm under constant threat outside my house. My guess is, many of you have been camping, and nine times out of ten, it's a completely normal and fun experience. That wasn't the case for Reddit user Sum Nemo. Narrating this experience is our own Tom Aglio. It was the summer right after I graduated from high school. A good friend and I decided to try our hand at camping. We grew up in the greater Los Angeles area, so our knowledge of the great outdoors was nothing beyond the couple years we had in Cub Scouts of America when we were in elementary school. In other words, we had almost no idea what we were doing. We packed a tent, a couple sleeping bags, supplies, etc., and headed off in his car. Note well that I grew up in the 80s, so this is the time before the wide prevalence of cell phones and the existence of other portable digital devices. We drove north on the 395 for about six hours and then headed westward into the mountains in the area of Inyo Canyon. First mistake, we didn't plan on which place to camp. We played it by ear, i.e. like fools. Second mistake, we left in mid-afternoon. It was pitch black darkness when we arrived in the general area. We had driven off the main road and onto a dirt road in order to find a spot to camp. The dust from driving on the dirt road overwhelmed the headlight high beams when we finally decided to pull over and set up camp. It was around 23.30 around this time, and we were exhausted and famished. Any place was a good spot to camp for us given our only reason to do so at that point was our hunger and exhaustion. Third mistake, we didn't bring flashlights. We only had big lighters for our cigarettes. We tried to set up the tent using our lighters and the headlights of the car, which was parked about 10 to 15 feet away. The wind was blowing, so the lighter constantly went out after a few seconds, either directly because of the wind or indirectly because the wind would push the flame into our thumb. Clearly, we were being complete idiots. We finished setting up the tent, but at that point, I was too tired to eat. My friend managed to make some instant ramen. We smoked a cigarette in the car, then crashed out in the tent. We awoke to a very cold morning must have been around 5.30. Immediately upon exiting the tent, we realized that we were camped at the entrance of a hiking trail. There were at least two no-camping signs in visible distance from us. We dismantled the tent, cleaned up, and cleared out. That morning, we ended up buying some cheap flashlights and a nice hot meal in a very small town. It wasn't really a town, but more like a few storefronts and shops on a main road, about the length of an average city block. We went into some office, though I don't recall exactly what it was. It might have been a park ranger station or the office headquarters for a campground. In any case, we found and reserved a site for the night. The campground was basically like a large circle with campsites along its outer circumference, with each campsite being about 50 yards from its neighbor. In the middle of the circle was a common bathroom and shower. We circled around it once, and I think we saw one family that was all set up with a tent and camper. We found our spot and set up camp, which was quite far from them. That night was when we had a creepy encounter. My friend and I were laying in the tent, shining our flashlights upwards and chatting. Our new flashlights eventually gave out. Yes, broken. Our fire pit was about six feet from the opening of our tent, and it was just a glowing ember. 
We probably should have completely put it out, and we probably shouldn't have had the tent so close. In any case, there we were, chatting away and having a good time. My friend began to be distracted with his foot. After the third or fourth time, he got up to check his foot. I asked him what was wrong. He told me that something is tapping his foot from the outside of the tent. His foot was against the side of the tent, so from the outside you would have been able to see a bulge in the tent side where his foot was. It was as if pebbles were being thrown at his foot through the tent. There it is again. What the hell? Each time it happened, there was a sound, like pebbles or a light tap. We sort of laughed it off, assuming that it was a twig or grass moving in the wind or perhaps a loose strap on the outside of the tent. I don't recall exactly how it happened at first, but I do remember we suddenly became silent at the same time. A sound came to be audible to the both of us, footsteps slowly moving towards our tent. We wondered if it was a bear or other non-human animal, but it seemed distinctly bipedal. They were very slow and measured, like a step every two seconds. I finally said in a whisper, Someone's coming. My friend didn't move. His face had an expression of fear. At some point, my friend bolted up and said, Fuck this. Grabbed this pipe, stuffed it full of pot, and took the biggest, deepest drags I've ever seen a person take. About a minute or two later, he was out. Drugs aren't my thing, so I was alone in the tent as far as conscious bodies are concerned. I was sitting up at this point, and I had taken out the only weapon I had, a Swiss Army pocket knife. I took out the big and small blades as well as the ice pick in the middle, and held it like some ridiculous melee weapon. I could see the glowing embers in the fire pit through the sheer nylon material of our tent, and I was able to roughly but barely discern some of the rocks around it. I watched and listened intently. The footsteps came closer and at the same slow pace. With each step, I could hear the dirt and rocks underfoot crunching and grinding. At some point, it was clear to me that whoever it was was standing between the tent and the fire pit. For my fuzzy line of sight to the burning embers through the nylon tent became obscured by something outside the tent. The footsteps stopped right at the front of the tent, about six to eight inches, no more than a foot from the entrance to the tent. It was silent for about one minute, and then I heard a click. At exactly the same time, I clearly saw through the nylon tent wall a flashlight turn on. I was able to see not just the flashlight, but the outline of the hand holding it. The flashlight was shining on the zipper entrance into the tent, just inches from the zipper. Blood drained out of my head and my palms instantly became dripping in sweat. I yelled, who's there? There was some fear in my voice, but it was mostly aggressive in tone. Whoever it was, the person immediately turned off their flashlight. I didn't move, but neither did they. The person just stood there, inches from the tent's only entrance. My friend is out, totally unaware of what's going on. Nevertheless, I pretended that he was still awake and whispered just loud enough to be audible to our visitor. Yes, loaded. There's one in the chamber. As if my friend was awake and asked me about our gun. Fourth mistake, we didn't have a gun or any real weapon for self-defense. It felt like an eternity, but after sitting still for at least ten minutes, I heard feet slowly turning in the dirt, then slowly walking away from the tent. I stayed up the whole night, and it wasn't until the light of dawn came through the tent that I crashed out. The heat inside the tent woke us up, and it was near noon by this point. We went outside to inspect the site, but found nothing missing. However, we did find boot prints leading away from our campsite and outside the campground. That was the last time I camped in a tent.
And here we are, approaching the tail end of this week's episode. But we're not done yet. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear our final terrifying tale of the evening. This episode of Disturbed was made possible by BetterHelp. We discussed some seriously disturbing things on this podcast. That's why we've partnered with BetterHelp. Are you feeling stressed, anxious, overwhelmed? BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed therapist. Connect in a safe, private, online environment. It's convenient, affordable, and you'll be matched with a counselor within 24 hours. You'll have access to video sessions, phone calls, live chat, and messaging. Every counselor on BetterHelp is licensed by the respective state and has over 3,000 hours of experience. BetterHelp counselors address depression, relationship issues, family conflict, and more. Right now, they're offering disturbed listeners a special discount. Visit betterhelp.com disturbed and use code disturbed at checkout to receive 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com disturbed. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. This episode was also made possible by State Bags. State Bags makes beautiful, well-made, inclusively cool products while using the power of business to give back to shift the narrative around social injustice. For every State Bag purchased, State hand-delivers a backpack packed with essential tools for success to an American child in need. But their commitment goes beyond simply a material donation. State Bags has your back. And part of that commitment is making a difference in local kids' lives. To get you ready for your commute or wherever you're traveling next, State is offering our listeners 15% off their next purchase at statebags.com using code POD. That's 15% off your next purchase using code POD, P-O-D, at statebags.com. State Bags, they have your back. And finally... This episode was made possible by Hunt a Killer, Blair Witch Edition. Experience the supernatural forces of the Blair Witch like never before in this narrative-driven psychological thriller. Every month you'll receive a new box of clues, documents, and ciphers that get you closer to the truth. Uncover the history of Burkittsville in this Blair Witch tabletop role-playing game. Work together with your friends or go it alone to overcome the malevolent forces in this terrifying experience from the makers of Hunt a Killer. Right now, as a disturbed listener, you can receive 20% off your first box by visiting huntakiller.com slash blairwitch and use code disturbed at checkout. Again, that's huntakiller.com slash blairwitch and use code disturbed for 20% off your first box. And come find out why over 10,000 members can't get enough of the challenge and the thrill. 
You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dr. Grande the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorized financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. And with that... We've reached our final experience, and it's a doozy. We establish relationships with neighbors of all different kinds. Usually, you think you know them pretty well and would even trust them. But Reddit user Blue Baylor found out that not all neighbors are created equal. Narrating this experience is new guest narrator Charlotte Norup. This is my first post ever, and I was content with just being a silent lurker. But something happened to me the other night, and I figured I could contribute my own story about how I found out my neighbors are terrorists. I'm sure a lot of you already know this as it made its rounds in the news, but a few days ago on October 7th, 2020, there was an FBI raid on a trailer in Michigan. This story takes place the night of the raid, around 7.30pm. My boyfriend was at home sleeping when I came home from work around 6.45pm. I drove into our neighborhood and turned down the street to our house. All seemed normal as I go inside the house to rouse my sleeping boyfriend, and we prepare to gather our things to go shopping. 
It takes me a little while to wake him up, and we chat for a bit about my day. As we go to leave our house to go shopping, we're continuing a conversation we were having as we step out onto our front porch. I noticed then that we're much louder than the outside. I noticed that there were people standing on the end of the road. I stop mid-sentence and it's then I realize how eerily quiet it is aside from my boyfriend, who was still talking, unaware something was off. I quickly tap his shoulder and try to draw his attention from locking our door to the people gathering in the street. We both look around and then I notice a police car at the other end of the street, just barely in view. There were two officers speaking to some men beside their large SUV. The SUV was a state car that was parked somewhat sideways, so it was blocking the road, but it had its lights off. I took this as a sign that some mild neighborhood scuffle had occurred, and someone called the police. A noteworthy thing, but not too uncommon for a mobile home park. We proceeded to our car, and I commented somewhat irritated that they better move the police car soon, as they were really blocking the traffic. As we made our way out of our driveway, another car turned down our street and headed up the road towards the police car. This gave us the confidence we needed as sheep to follow someone else towards the confrontation. As we slowly crawled up the street in our car, we watched the car in front of us stop and turn at a road that had been left unblocked just in front of the police. We moved to this area somewhat recently and haven't learned the entire ins and outs of every street in the park yet. Unfortunately, this street was a dead end. As we rounded the corner on the dead end street, I caught a glimpse of the police and my irritation immediately melted into confusion and fear when I noticed the large assault rifles they were carrying. It dawned on me as we made our way toward the end of the road that, whatever the police were doing, they weren't here because of some small neighbor fight. I felt my anxiety rising as I started rambling about how they had guns and why would they have such massive guns outside our house? We turned the car around and as we came back up on the police blockade, they silently motioned for us to go back down towards our house. We did, but eager to still leave our neighborhood and hopefully find out what the hell was going on, we passed our house and turned down a different road to try going around. At this time, we thought it was weird that there was a cop car with no lights on, but heavily armed officers standing by around it, but we didn't think that there would be any more. We were wrong. As we rounded the street, we were immediately greeted by another police car and two more armed men, this time in full military uniform with lights flashing. I think my jaw dropped to the floor as the men started towards our car. I started really freaking out at this point and told my boyfriend to just turn around and get us the hell out of there. As we turned around, I noticed out the passenger window that there was someone in handcuffs by the side of the house. He was looking right at us and I felt really sick. We finally found a road that led us out of the park and onto the main road. We got to the grocery store and recounted what had just happened on our trip to go grocery shopping. It took me a full hour to finally stop shaking and process. We thought it was crazy, but assumed it probably was some kind of high-profile drug raid. 
We found out the next day when the news broke that there were multiple people arrested in a twisted plot to kidnap our state governor. The raid had taken place approximately 15 to 30 minutes before we left our house, and our dumbasses had no idea. The second time we pulled up on the police blockade, it was right outside the house the raid had taken place at. It really made me stop and reconsider everything that had happened that night, and how suspicious we probably came across. I now have to come to terms with the fact that I live down the street from domestic terrorists, or at least their house, since I assume it's still in their name right now. I've made a point of figuring out multiple routes through our new neighborhood, because I realized how dangerous that could be in a more immediate emergency. I don't even want to think about what could have happened if they weren't stopped, and how much crazier that altercation could have been just down the street. This episode of Disturbed was mixed and produced by yours truly. And that electrifying, spine-tingling score you heard is courtesy of White Bat Audio, Co.ag, and Kevin Hartnell. Special thanks to all the contributing narrators and submitters of these stories. You'll find all the relevant links in the show notes. Make sure you get your voice heard. Leave us a voicemail or text at 701 354 3667. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.